Welcome to the Spark Plug Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Spark Plug Podcast. My name is Ethan Roberts, and I will be your host today for a very exciting episode. Grace College has just about finished hosting the prestigious acting company, The Actors from the London Stage. This group provides exciting Shakespeare plays performed by incredible professional actors to American colleges and universities. As a part of their nationwide tour, they also offer their knowledge and experience to classes and groups on campus, making for an amazing week-long teaching experience. Uh, Today, we are lucky enough to be able to sit down and chat with one of this year's members, Cave Keating. Cave studied at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London and plays the roles of Duke Orsino, Feste the Fool, and Fabian in this tour's production of Twelfth Night. Cave, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. How's your day going, Cave? It's going all right. Yeah. Got up. I had a cup of tea, which is nice. Lovely. Nice for English people to have a cup of tea in the morning. (laughs) So I always appreciate that. Awesome. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna get right into the uh, the big questions. Okay, let's do it. How did you first get your start in professional acting, Cave? Uh, in professional acting, well, so uh, I got into acting just in general from a really young age. My parents actually met at an amateur dramatics group or or a um, community theatre, I think you call it yes. in the states. Yes. Um, and then I did a lot of that when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, that's where I kind of got the taste for it. That's where I really started enjoying it. And when I was about 15, I joined this youth theatre whose entire kind of driving idea is that if you want to go to drama school, if you want to be a professional actor, this is a really good place to be at this age. And I just realised, like, oh, you can get paid for doing this. This this sounds great. So uh, I auditioned for drama schools. I got in to Guildhall, as you mentioned. Um Stayed there for three years. Uh, and in your final year, you do shows for agents and casting directors and people come and see you. It's very, very stressful, but also very fun. And I was lucky enough to get an agent. And then you, th- th- you're sort of off to the races. Then they put you up for auditions. Um, you go along to the auditions. You hopefully get a job. And then you people eventually finally start to pay you for acting. Um, and, and that's where I am now. And so what led you to join the Actors from the London stage then? So I heard about the company, so a few people from Guildhall who were a couple of years above me have done tours before. Um, Evie Miller has done a couple. I don't think any that have come here. And my friend Grace Andrews, she was in Hamlet, which toured last summer. Also, uh, I'm a member of a theatre company in London called The Factory, of which actually there's quite a few of us from The Factory in this production of Twelfth Night as it happens. And um, there's someone in The Factory who uh, got me involved and got me to come along and audition for this. Lots of very similar things, Lots of playing lots of different roles, mm-hmm. learning lots and lots of text, <laughs> um, kind of being able to function without the typical things that you usually have in theatre, of, uh, of the, all the luxuries of having a stage manager and a costume designer and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit sort of rough and ready theatre. So I kind of had a bit of grounding in that idea of things beforehand. Um, so it translated quite well to AFTLS. Nice. And so when you are traveling across this giant nationwide tour that you guys do, um, do you find that it really changes the way that you approach prepping for a show? Or is it more just like whatever you do before regular shows and just a lot more miles? That's a good question. I think so we have to set the stage up ourselves and everything like that. Obviously, as I mentioned, we've got no stage manager or anything like that. We all have to act as the stage manager Mm -hmm. and that stuff themselves. I always appreciated stage management before. I now have a much deeper understanding of all the work that they do 
Um, so the next show I do where we do have a stage manager, I'm going to really, really, really appreciate them. Maybe a gift basket or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because uh, they do incredible work. Um, and now I've had to do a fraction of it myself. I understand that a bit better. So there's that. That goes into it. So, for example, um, in our show, the way we mark out our playing space is with some fairy lights on the ground, battery-operated fairy lights. Mm -hmm. And my job is the lights. That's my thing that I do. So in terms of preparation that's part of the show as well and that's become kind of part of my habitual thing the times when we've got to get those lights out um and then all the other stuff setting all the props um making sure all the props are set which is two different things um yeah and all that stuff really uh but then in terms of like warming up and all that stuff that that's that's kind of the same um yeah vocal warm-up physical warm-up a little group thing we usually play a song together which is nice nice um, and so when you're doing this tour, not only are you guys acting for the college, you're also very graciously going around and teaching and volunteering at groups and classes. Um, so what's what's something that you've picked up along the way on this tour about interacting with college students? Is there some kind of tip or trick that you would that you'd say you've found as you've gone along that helps you in classrooms? Um, it's nice that you say we're doing it very graciously. Um, that's uh, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> We, uh, a tip for dealing with college students I'd say it's just kind of like remaining enthusiastic and just knowing that um, if you're t so for example most of the teaching I've done has been for acting students as opposed to students who aren't as familiar with getting up on their feet and saying text out loud yeah. um, but I think it's just about believing that everybody will go for stuff if you don't like force them into it and kind of invite them in um, mm -hmm. that's what I've found but generally like the teaching's been really good fun um, and everyone's been up for it and yeah it's been a dream really and is there is there ever been a class where you've been oh my goodness there's zombies how do I how do I get the how do I get the blood flowing <laughs> yeah so like every class you do you've got to kind of read the room um, for example generally morning classes you've got to do something to get the energy going mm -hmm. um, which we've got exercises for that it's usually involves like jumping around shaking your body around like a crazy person um or we if you read the room and it seems like everybody's a bit frenetic a bit kind of all over the place you do like a breathing focus exercise to kind of redress the balance what you need to have ideally whenever you're performing or whenever you're in a workshop like that is this kind of like buzz of energy that's contained um so if there's no energy at all then you need to find that energy if the energy isn't contained then you need to kind of get everybody in control of it before you can work properly. So that's kind of getting everybody into that area is the thing that you want to do. And since you have performed for uh, both American and English audiences, now that you've been on tour, what is the biggest difference that you see between the two audiences? <laughs> um, well, one big difference that springs to mind is at the end, uh, American audiences are, are very generous with their applause. Um, but the applause lasts, doesn't actually quite last as long. So it's just a strange difference for us. England, we'll sort of sit there and clap and be very sort of, but we'll all sit down, we'll stay sat. Mm -hmm. um, it takes a lot to get an English audience on their feet because, I don't know, we're very snooty. <laughs> um, whereas an American audience will kind of like, often like burst out of their seats at the end. It's really lovely and then it'll be over quite quickly as well. Uh, so it's a lot more energy in a shorter space of time, I think, with American audiences. Delayed gratification, that's what we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, maybe that's more what the Brits, that's are, the Brits, that's yeah. what the Brits are doing. 
Um, yeah. If you get any gratification at all from a London audience, but um, <laughs> no, Americans just want to just want to give it all out. And it's one lovely, large. Uh, that's what we do with everything. Yeah, though, there's so. no yeah, there's <laughs> no forethought there. It's just mm-hmm. like, hey, I liked it, which is exactly what an audience. That's w- what you ideally are uh, doing to an audience is is helping them enjoy their evening. And so, if you were doing this show in England as opposed to America, is there? Uh, jokes or bits or scenes that maybe you would change or cut that you think wouldn't go over as well with that audience? Um, I don't know about that. I think had we been putting this together for a British audience, there might have been some changes in the way. We, so, for example, when we were when we were figuring out how we we're going to denote each of our characters, uh, like the way I do it is with three different accents, as among other things. But we had to be quite careful that the accents we were choosing weren't really specific regional dialects from mm-hmm. the UK, which it just wouldn't be fair to expect an American audience to understand. If I was going to go into a sort of thick Glaswegian for one of my characters, there's absolutely no way you'd understand a word that I was saying. So we sort of like tried to stick to accents that it would be fair mm-hmm. <laughs> to subject an American audience to. I, know, I think I might have paid extra to see that accent all night. <laughs> That'd be well, maybe I should do a little sideshow or something at the end and <laughs> charge people. Um, so that's that's one thing I think that might have been different. Um, no, I think I think that's pretty much it. I think mean, audiences are audiences, you know, and yeah. and if you try to do what they you think they want, that leads you down a really difficult path because actually you're just trying to please this audience. But an audience is different every single time you do a performance. It's always made up of different people. You can't ever predict what they're going to find funny, what they're going to not find funny, what's going to pull on their heartstrings or not. All you can really do is try and tell a story as truthfully and um, kind of accurately as you can as to mm-hmm. what the, how the writer wanted it to be told. And then that's it, really. Um, what I have found generally performing, because I've, I've been lucky enough to tour to other places in the world as well, and what I've found generally is that there's universal things. We all laugh when something surprises us. We all get quiet when we're worried about a character um that's just audiences are much more universal generally than i think uh people give them credit for it's just a group of people in a room listening to a story it's, it's quite a lovely thing really and you had just mentioned just a little bit ago about when you guys are sitting down making the show um, which leads to a very interesting point that you guys don't have a director as a group and when you're making and collaborating on making the show you is it just you guys coming up with the idea of how it should look and how the stage direction goes? Yeah, yeah. So there's no director. So the way it works is we get given our we get given the play, we get given our roles in the show, which is just as well. Otherwise, we'd all be fighting over who gets to do the famous bits. Um, and then we just kind of put in a room. We put in a room in Brixton. Uh, we get given a small budget with which to buy costume and props, but it's basically you have five weeks you need to emerge with a production of Twelfth Night, um, which is quite daunting at first. But luckily, like, for example, we have uh, Claire Redcliffe, who's um, an, an alumni of, and, and Al Barkley, who plays Toby Belch. Um, they're both alumni of the company. So they've been through this process before. They were able to sort of, like, guide us through it, uh, which was helpful. But, yeah, the system that we worked out was... If you're in the scene, you're in the scene, you're an actor. If you're not in the scene, you're a director. You sit out and you watch. Uh, you give notes, the actors do it again. It helped avoid this thing. There's a there's a big taboo uh, in the acting world of do not give other actors notes. It's a really 
bad thing to do. It leads to huge arguments. It's just a terrible thing. You're nodding your head. You've you, you've experienced this <laughs> yeah, phenomenon yes, before. Yes. Yes. It's a it's an important thing. It's that you need to have someone whose job it is to give everyone notes. Who's kind of a dictator in the room. You don't really get to argue with them. Mm-hmm. Um, However, we didn't have that, of course. We're actors. We have to give each other notes, otherwise the show isn't going to progress. So we set it up in this way that if you're in the scene, ideally you're not really giving any notes, at least in terms of performance. If it's a practical thing like, oh, we need that, we need to be on that diagonal for the staging to work, or I kind of feel like I'm being blocked a bit here, that's one mm-hmm. thing. But giving notes on someone's performance, that's kind of a no-no if you're in the scene, but if you're outside of the scene you're directing then that's the point and then you'll get up and you'll rehearse a different scene it'll be a totally different set of directors and but you all end up developing this shared language between you and what's really lovely about it is that everybody has this shared ownership of the whole play because if for example there's a section where um it's, it's often referred to as the box tree scene when um fabian Andrew Aguicheek and toby belch are hiding behind a tree watching marvolio reading a letter um, it's quite a well-known scene. It's often the idea is that it's supposed to be funny, which puts you under quite a bit of pressure. Mm. Anyway, there are f- three of us in that scene because Jono plays Malvolio and a- Andrea Cutic. Um But Claire and Catherine uh, have just as much ownership over that scene as as we do because they directed it. So it's and that, and that stretches out to the whole play. So that's a really lovely kind of. Um, sort of unpredictable symptom of not having a director which is mm. nice and Shakespeare is one of those things where I feel it's a really weird mixture of that's an immortal line don't touch it but also there's a lot of room for interpretation with the way you put on the scene obviously since you guys can't have big elaborate sets or anything what's what's the process of figuring out that's too much or that's too little a change to the actual uh, script well the way we work as a company and the way I think it's important to work often with Shakespeare, certain exceptions are fair enough, but generally the text is the text. That's the way I was trained. Um, if you get given a piece of writing, that's your job. Your job is to make that work, regardless of what it is. Um, obviously, if it's Shakespeare, it's great. Sometimes it's not, though. Uh, there are some jokes in there in Twelfth Night, for example, which are very dated. Some of the stuff mm-hmm. Feste says, there's just no feasible way a modern audience will understand some There's of those no context. No, because, yeah, it relies upon the audience having this other awareness of the references he's making, which we don't have anymore. It's 500 years ago. Um, so you've kind of got to figure that out while keeping the text the same. Um, so I think you've always got to be aware that you're performing the play in the modern day. It's always now when you're doing the play. And if you're not taking that on board, then why are you doing the play at all? Um, otherwise, it just becomes a, an exercise in sort of historical reenactment or anything. There's got to be a context with the modern audience to which you're performing this play. There's got to be a reason why this story that was written so long ago is still relevant to them. So you've got to sort of find that link, I think, in terms of your approach to staging, in terms of your approach to how characters exist. For example, um, if you just take the text as written, Orsino has like quite a lot of misogynistic, quite problematic text. And I play Orsino, and I was struggling with that a bit. I was trying to figure out, like, how... Because he just... He behaves like this sort of misogynistic man for the whole play and eventually just gets what he wants. Uh, that's what the text says anyway. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Shakespeare was maybe drawing different conclusions. He was writing about a different society that had different values. We've sort of moved on from some of those values today. So we've got to figure out how to keep that relevant. And I, I think the way that we solve it in the play does work. So it's kind of uh, isolating those issues, figuring them out, and then figuring out how you can adapt them so that they suit a modern audience. So since you play multiple characters in the show, you had mentioned earlier about um, the way that you differentiate is the accents. Um, what was what was your own personal process in discovering, ooh, that accent for that character, that, that character does this with his hands, or the mannerisms behind each of them? That's a good question. It's... Um... Yeah, it's an important thing that, especially since because we've got all the actors are playing multiple parts, we've got to be really clear in the way that we denote each character. So accents is one thing, um, but there's lots of other stuff too. Yeah, physically finding the character is important and sort of figuring out what the kind of silhouette of them is so that if you see me standing as one of them, you kind of pretty much immediately know which one I am without overdoing it without completely just getting grotesque mm-hmm. although often you've got to go a bit too far in rehearsal and then bring it back and that's what you've got to rely on your other actors or directors to help you with um but it's all got to come from the text uh so for example uh with Orsino um from the verse structure of his first speech he has lots of um, this is something I go through in my classes he's got lots of thoughts which are broken up by verse lines and lots of new thoughts that start in the middle of verse lines and to get really boring and technical if you're not breaking up a verse line for example um if music be the food of love play on i wouldn't go if music be the food of love play on i'd say it all as a one rhythmic line and if i'm following that rule I can discover from Orsino's just his opening speech that he's very changeable. He kind of changes his mind in the middle of verse lines a lot, which gives me a clue about his character. And that's what Shakespeare's giving us from the text. Uh, And then I can use that information to figure out his movement. So, for example, Orsino's movement, it's got this kind of languid quality to it, but will occasionally change and switch and go into a slash uh, type movement rather than a kind of glide is what he's normally got going on, which... I feel comes from the text um and then i have a different thing for feste and a different thing for uh fabian again um it's about not putting stuff on it mm-hmm. not um deciding oh this character does this because i've decided that he does uh because he's the type of character that would do this i think it's about delving into the writing which is the only thing you've got to hang your hat on and then pulling stuff out of that and just after watching the show myself um, one of the things that I thought you did brilliantly, um, just just the way you walked, the differentiation between Duke Orsino's walking and Feste's walking was just it was it was really cool to see. Um, you know, Duke obviously walked with a very very large grandeur, and Feste kind of had a little bit of a slouch in his back sometimes, oh, good. lifting the feet up a little bit high. I don't know. It it's something that I don't think that maybe was something you were super intentional, like thinking the whole time, now it's time to lift my feet up. But it, it just was very natural and very um, very cool to watch. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and that all comes from the sort of tensions that you decide to put in your body. Stuff just does come in naturally. And when you've been playing a character for a while, you just kind of get a feeling for where they sit in your body. A lot of my training at drama school in terms of movement was focused on first initially releasing all of our own habitual tensions that we carry around with us in order to be able to put a character's back on. Like, for example, I hold a lot of tension in my shoulders. A lot of the time that affects my walk 
And so if you see me walking down the street, it's because of certain tensions I hold in my body. I need to be able to release those and then put other someone else's tensions in, which leads to Feste walking one way and Osino walking another. And so there was a lot of music in this production. What was what was the the process of trying to find what you were going to do with the songs in terms of what uh, rhythm to put behind them? Were there actual sheet music for the Shakespearean songs that Feste sings, or was it more just, ah, I like that tune on the guitar? <laughs> or somewhere in the middle, probably. It's much closer to the second one. So, because I was Feste, and I play the guitar, uh, and I rocked up to the first, because I thought I'd just bring stuff with me on the first day. We didn't know what we were going to need. I rocked up with a guitar under my arm, and I ended up sort of becoming the default music person <laughs> as a result. Um, and also, because I've got to sing most of the songs, it made sense that I was the one making them up. And the way I learnt music was much more through a kind of like folky by ear vibe than I did some music lessons at school but I didn't come through it from a classical um, sort of notation point of view so I was never going to be able to compose it in a proper way there are tunes there's quite a famous tune to the final song uh, uh, The Wind and the Rain which everyone usually does and it's a, it's a great tune it's really haunting and strange but uh, one I couldn't really figure it out on the guitar. And two, I thought, I'm making stuff up for the other ones. And I... So yeah, so I just noodled around a bit with the guitar and found these tunes, changed them, adapted them, kind of got them to where I wanted them to be, then showed them to the group. And then and then we had this one really joyous rehearsal where we were starting to figure out the instruments that everyone can play. Like Catherine, for example, who plays the ukulele in the show, she learned the ukulele for this show. She didn't play oh, wow. it before, um, which is really impressive. Uh, Jono just happened to he just picked up one of the harmonicas I'd bought and started doing all this blues stuff on it. It was like, right, okay, you're, that's in. Uh, Al had been trying to improve his accordion playing and so he was he wanted to bring it with him um, around the States. And as soon as I heard he was bringing an accordion with him, I was like, well, that's going in the show then. <laughs> uh, yeah, and we've got Claire on percussion. So it, we've got this little band, this little folk band that's... Um, sort of worked itself out. It was a wonderful ending. Yeah, it was, it it's was really, really, really neat. Yeah, oh, cool. That's good. Yeah. So just just a for fun question so far on tour, what is the oddest thing that's either happened during a show or maybe right before a show or after? The oddest thing that's ever happened. I, I tell you, the one of the most unexpected things that happened was, for me anyway, was... Um, so, for example, I opened the second half of the show with a song that is dedicated to the place that we're in um ideally uh so for example it might be like a college fight song uh when we were in notre dame and on austin texas they've got quite well-known football fight songs so we did that uh when we we're in san jose we did do you know the way to san jose for example um on the first performance here yesterday because it was halloween i did the monster mash which was good fun um but in well, we, so we did a residency at the U.S. Naval Academy, and there's a Navy song, uh, and I thought they're probably going to know this one. This is probably going to be like with the Notre Dame fight song. People in the crowd know it, so I need to know it pretty well. So I really practiced it, kind of worked out this sort of like folky version of it. Got up on stage, started singing it. I'd started saying the first couple of words, and they were bellowing it back to me. It was insane, and and at that point in the show, I'm just standing on my own on stage as well. And because they have to learn it in training, uh, they have this whole summer of training before their actual term starts, before where they're subjected to all this crazy stuff. 
Um, but they have to learn all these poems and all these songs and all this other stuff. And it's incredible. It was amazing. It was quite a, it nearly knocked me over. There was 600 midshipmen all bellowing this song back to me. And then, because we had two performances there, uh, for the second performance, we had people coming up to us going, oh, no, okay, great. Well, if you sing this, then they'll sing that back. And if you do this, this is like a call and response thing. And, uh, oh, if you say that, then they'll answer this question. So we started putting this stuff into the show. So, for example, if you if you say to a midshipman, and I say this to anyone listening, if you ever come across a midshipman who's still in training at the U.S. Naval Academy, if you say, how long have you been in the Navy? He or she has to reply with this crazy sort of poem uh, about it's uh, all me blooming life, sir. My father was, my mother was a mermaid, and my father was King Neptune. They did it in this like cod British accent, but it goes on for ages. So I opened the second half with that, and they all like bellowed that back to me. Uh, we put another song in there. It was just yeah. So it was all that was a really <laughs> special thing. Oh my goodness, I I would again pay to just watch that section of <laughs> of that place. That would be amazing. Yeah, that was cool. Oh. And so another personal-ish question. Out of the three characters that you play in Twelfth Night, do you have a personal favorite? Ooh, that's a good one. I think I like them all. I think Orsino has the biggest journey. I think Orsino is the one who changes the most. And he's the one who I think to like a modern audience can maybe the journey that we figured out for him that can sort of affect a modern audience the most in terms of... He's a man who's surrounded by men who doesn't really understand that women are the same as men in terms of they're all human beings. He's got very strange opinions about women and he's very slowly, eventually, that his his opinions are opened up. So I think that's a... Re- I really like playing that journey every night. Um, first day I really enjoy as well, though, because of all the songs and the comedy and his whole character and there's a lot of darkness within him as well. There's a lot of like self-preservation going on. Um, he's from a very, he's from a slightly different world to everyone else in the play as well, and he can, he has to adapt and shape himself to each scene that he's in. Um, he's very different with Toby Belch and Andrea Gucic than he is with Olivia. He's very different again with Orsino. He's very different in all the situations he's in. So that's quite fun to play. Fabian though is also really good fun. I really enjoy him because he's a character that's essentially. The theory is that when Shakespeare was writing the play, he realised he had put Feste in two different places at once, which just wouldn't make sense. So he had to invent this other character to do some of the comedy stuff, uh, which is why Fabian just pops up halfway through the play. No explanation at all. He's got one line to explain why he doesn't like Malvolio, and then that's it. You're in. But what's really nice about that is there's so little to hang your hat on in terms of the text. Um, All you know about him is that he's there for a bit and then he's gone again. Um you kind of have a bit more free reign to really sort of figure out his character. So uh, I enjoyed that too. Uh, we can't be remiss to not mention uh, Sir Topaz as well. Oh, well, Sir Topaz, yeah. Sir Topaz, who is an act at, like Feste playing another part. Yeah, and I enjoy the Sir Topaz bit because that gives me license to do some terrible acting because I'm a, I'm a character playing an actor, which means I can do all the terrible things you're not supposed to do of waving my arms around and being really silly with my voice. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a nice excuse for that, um, but yeah, it's it's. I guess it's it's kind of like asking which one of your kids you love the most. I kind of I love them all in their mm-hmm. own special way. So, do you have something planned or lined up after uh, you're done with this tour? Do you have something else that you're hoping to audition for soon? Oh, <laughs> that's the question. Um, no, 
currently. Uh, it's it's very rare that people do. Um, it's kind of the life of an actor. You've got these these weird ups and downs. You um, and you don't really know where the next job's going to come from. It's 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 stressful and wonderful in equal measure because. This time last year, I had no idea I was going to get to tour the United States and go to all these amazing places. So stuff just just come out of nowhere and into your lap. So, um, but no, I imagine the Christmas shows have probably all been cast. Christmas shows have definitely all been cast by now and are now rehearsing. So I imagine I'll have a relatively chilled out December. I'll see some friends, um, have a nice Christmas, and then hopefully stuff will get cracking in January. Sounds wonderful. So... Now that you are coming to the close of your tour here at Grace College, do you have a first and a final impression of the school? Um, I think my first impression was that it was like, oh, this is nice. Um, Our time in Indiana, we were in DePaul University last week, which is near Indianapolis. But before then, we'd been in San Jose, which is like really just in the middle of Silicon Valley, really frenetic, really stressful. So I think coming to Indiana, and especially around here, around Winona Lake and so it's just so relaxed, nice and calm, a bit more chilled out. We can kind of breathe a bit. It's a bit more out in the countryside. So in terms of first impressions of arriving, I think it was probably that. And my, my lasting impressions of the place are just the people here are so friendly and kind and just willing to really help us out and always making sure that we, we've got everything we need and but in, in a way that just makes us feel very looked after and cared for. Um, all the students are really lovely and friendly and up for mucking in and yeah it's just yeah it's a really lovely place and so we're going to leave with this last question do you have any advice that you give to a student or an adult looking to pursue a career in theater film or tv um yes i do i think get involved with a group that is putting on plays um they're everywhere go and find one do it do as much of it as you can um figure out if you really like it (laughs) because it is an amazing profession but you've got to really like it you've got to really enjoy it it's got to really tickle something in you that other stuff doesn't um i think because it can be really hard work um but go and do it yeah go and do it go and play be in plays um put plays on and then if 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 you think yeah i'm serious about this then it's difficult because i think things work differently in the states I think you have drama schools, but they kind of work more as universities, so I couldn't give expert advice on that. But if you want to do that, then go and get some training. Um, and then I guess after that you get an agent and go and do it. Um, but the, the first thing's first, do lots of plays. Um, do musicals at school, do musicals and plays in youth groups or community theatre. Just do and as much as you can, um, because if nothing else, you'll make a load of great friends. Like that's why I that's why I think I fell in love with it initially, is because the whole community of it. Um, it's called community theatre after all, mm. um, and then the thrill of being in front of an audience. That's that's all part of it too. But I think my the thing I love the most about it is the friends that you make and the, and the, it's the, a group of people working together to put on a story for an audience. Excellent. Cave, thank you, thank you so much for coming in um, and talking with us today. And uh, we'll see you later. Yeah, thanks very much. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Spark Plug Podcast. 
This podcast is a production of the communications program at Grace College. If you're looking for more information about the program or updates about the languages, literature, and communications department, you can always visit our website at grace.edu slash LLC. Again, that's grace.edu slash LLC. Thanks so much for listening.